Is Rania there? It's Malika. Oh, hold on, hold on. Just give me a second. Uh, apparently, a 17-year-old Palestinian was shot. Oh. Oh, my gosh. Is that what you were reporting on today? Yeah. Here, just a second. Oh, okay. Um... I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Tuesday, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas addressed the United Nations Security Council. He was holding a map of the Palestinian territories in his hands. This is the state that they will give us. It's like a Swiss cheese. Who among you will accept a similar state in similar conditions? He came with one message to reject the so-called deal of the century, the Middle East plan presented to Palestinians by U.S. President Donald Trump. This plan rewards the occupation instead of holding it accountable for all the crimes it perpetrated against our people and our land. And he wanted to encourage the rest of the world to do the same. Anticipating this speech, we called up Al Jazeera's West Bank producer, Rania Zabane. I've been working with Al Jazeera as a West Bank producer for the past 10 years. And I've been reporting before for Al Jazeera Arabic for another 10 years. I've got a a couple of degrees from Columbia University in New York and Brazil University. I'm very passionate about the story. My parents are refugees, actually. My father is from Ramle and my mother's family hails from the coastal city of Jaffa. Now, Ramla and Jaffa are part of Israel, butting up to Israel's second largest city, Tel Aviv. And I was born and raised in Ramallah. I live here, so whatever happens here reflects directly on my life and that of my family. So, yeah, there's that. (laughs) We are catching you on what seems like a very busy day. Just over the course of the few minutes that I've had you on the phone, you've had to pull away to report on something else. A 17-year-old Palestinian teen was uh, shot in Hebron a short while ago during confrontations with the Israeli military in the city. When we talked to her, Rania was in her office in Ramallah, in the occupied West Bank. For Palestinians, that's a two-hour drive from Hebron, at least. With checkpoints, it can take a lot longer. Hebron is a very tense place in the occupied West Bank in the sense that there are settlers living there amongst a very huge Palestinian population, which is always reason for confrontations. Okay, wait a second. While we were talking, Rania kept stopping and starting. There's a video for it. Updates kept coming in. Shoot. Rania wouldn't say this story was typical. This was a 17-year-old boy fighting for his life. There's nothing normal about that. But in the the 24-hour news cycle and what's happening in the area, it doesn't make the headlines anymore. But to Hebron and to this guy's family, the event is obviously going to change their lives forever. The boy, Mohammed al-Haddad, died. The story was posted in the Jerusalem Post and the Middle East Eye, But this U.S. plan is still holding on to the headlines. Thank you very much. Thank you. Last week, Trump... Today, Israel takes a big step towards peace. And Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu... Exceptional peace plan, Mr. President. ...first presented the Peace to Prosperity Plan, 
in a press conference to the world. I'm going to do a quick introduction in Arabic, looking at that camera, and then I'll come to you. Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner, was on our network, Al Jazeera, trying to sell his plan. President Trump has tried very hard to take a Middle East and, and make some sense of all the different conflicts there and to bring the region forward. I think The Arab League rejected it. Iran's supreme leader was tweeting about how foolish it was. He's not a fan. And we've been hearing from Israel's far, far right about how parts of it aren't happening soon enough. We'll get to that. But let's be honest, this deal is about Palestinians. Even Jared Kushner says this is about a Palestinian state and Palestinian lives. Although he also says things like this. The Palestinian leadership have to ask themselves a question. Do they want to have a state? Do they want to have a better life? If they do, we have created a framework for them to have it, and we're going to treat them in a very respectful manner. If they don't, then they're going to screw up another opportunity like they've screwed up every other opportunity that they've ever had in their existence. Not very peaceful language. Not holding back there. That just sounds like some skillful diplomacy. (laughs) Uh, With lots of strong reactions. God damn! We're going to treat them with all the respect. Was that respect? That's a pretty harsh way to try and win someone over. Jared will be the but I wanted to ask Rania what Palestinians were saying. In general, I'd say you'd find no Palestinian who's happy with the deal. It strips them off pretty much everything they've been fighting for in the past 50 years plus. So what I wanted to hear is look at this deal bit by bit to understand what this plan is proposing and exactly why that doesn't work for Palestinians. Tell us about Abu Dis. According to Section 5 of the U.S. plan, that is where the new capital for the Palestinian people would go? Abu Dis is a small town. It's in the suburbs of Jerusalem. However, it ended up being on the side of the wall, not within the Israeli annexed side of Jerusalem. The wall is this massive concrete separation barrier, stretching as high as 8 meters or 26 feet in some places. So not being within the Israeli annex side of Jerusalem means Palestinians living in Abu Dis have a hard time getting to Jerusalem. And the way Rania describes it, just like the famous Lebanese singer Fairuz once wrote, this one's a classic, you should check it out, Jerusalem has a very special place in Palestinian hearts. It's magical. <laughs> it's, it's a very beautiful place. It means a lot for Palestinians because of its history. It's very rich in history. In terms of religious places, there's a Laksa Mosque, there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. President Trump has been pretty overwhelmingly made fun of because during his speech he referenced the Al-Aqwa Mosque. The Al-Aqwa Mosque will be able to do so. So you saw lots of good memes about that, but it also seemed to underlie what people were saying is this is a joke to them because they can't even get this right. The people there are very resilient. It's it's old city just speaks of its uh, long history. Um, the city itself is used to be the center. Um, you know, it's been a while since I myself have been there. So it's, it's really hard for me to describe it as well. It's, it's been a while. I can't get there without an Israeli permit. Like any Palestinian living in the West Bank, we have a Palestinian identity and that highly restricts our movement 
and access to several places, including Jerusalem. We have to get an Israeli permit enabled to be able to, to enter the city. And that permit is rarely given. So it's very close and yet very far. Mm. I remember the first time that I was fortunate enough to visit Jerusalem and I was coming from Ramallah and I had to endure those checkpoints and I had this feeling of guilt as an American knowing that even though it was incredibly difficult and demeaning and dehumanizing to be out in the heat with other women and children being made to stand in the line with no guarantee that we would get to the other side, there was this feeling that I will probably be able to get to where I'm going, whereas some of the people that I'm standing with, the actual Palestinian citizens, will not. You know, I'll tell you a personal story. I've got three kids. The oldest is eight. He's been to the States. He's been to several countries in Europe, but never to Jerusalem. And I am to blame for that because I don't want him to see and to endure those checkpoints. I don't want him to feel like he's not human and he's not being treated as such. I don't want him to be exposed firsthand to the occupation. It's very humiliating. It takes long hours and it's degrading to say the least. So from Abu Dis, you can see Jerusalem over that separation wall. It's so close yet so far. That's how Palestinians feel about it. You can literally see the Dome of the Rock from some places in Abu Dis, but you can't get there if you don't have the necessary permits, no. Of course it's rejected that Abu Dis would be the capital. Of course it's unreasonable. Ibrahim Arakat was living in Abu Dis until just recently, when he was told to destroy his own home. They have come after me for a house that is 70 square meters. He got a notice in Hebrew from the Israeli government to tear it down. They're using the land to build a tunnel. Not for him, for Israeli settlers. Around Jerusalem, you've got a ring of settlements, a real settlement, one of the largest illegal settlements in the West Bank, basically a dagger that cuts the West Bank in half, the north from the center. And you've got pretty much the same with Gosh Etzion settlement block that is by Beit Lahem and cuts it off from Jerusalem. You're already looking at the Swiss cheese when you're looking at the West Bank, to be honest. The peace plan plans on annexing those settlements. But the reality is, is that uh, those settlements are never being uprooted. And For decades, Israel has been building Israeli outposts outside of Israel proper. Often with red roofs, often on top of hills, overlooking Palestinian areas. And they're illegal under international law. Their homes, their schools, their businesses, these are full settlement cities, really. The increase in building hasn't satisfied settler groups, though, who wanted more from Benjamin Netanyahu's warm relationship with a new U.S. president. Since the announcement of the U.S. plan, some Israeli settlers have been protesting their government, saying these settlements aren't being annexed soon enough. So I asked Rania, she lives in the West Bank where they are, what she knows about the settlements firsthand. I've only been seeing them from outside. I was never able or allowed to get into uh, inside an Israeli settlement. So any description I'll be giving you is basically given from what I've been seeing in videos and on uh, 
on the TV or our filming. But I can tell you one thing that even the outposts that are illegal under Israeli law, which like, I don't know if, if that's even a term that makes them double legal. They have water and electricity and playgrounds where, uh, whereby near Palestinian villages don't get those services. That's what Ibrahim Arakat, the guy who's had to tear down his home, says too. In the same area, there are new Jewish residents that have been there for two years. They have all the amenities. They give them everything, and they don't have any ordinances against them. I don't know why. And the fact that the plan, the Trump plan, suggests that those settlements are annexed, what kind of message does that send? Annexing those settlements would mean that you wouldn't be able to build a contiguous Palestinian state. It means that you have no control over your borders, over your resources, is something no Palestinian would swallow. Trump is basically saying, the U.S. president is basically saying, if you've got the power to take it, it's yours. So further north in the state of Israel, no longer in the West Bank, there are a lot of Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in an area called the Triangle. What would happen to them underneath this plan? Basically, the Trump plan is moving those towns to Palestine. Their citizenship is going to be revoked. There's a proposal to move the border so that their homes are no longer in Israel. And there's a very specific reason for this, Rania says. It's giving Netanyahu a way out from what is being referred to in Israel as a demographic problem. They're getting rid of Palestinian Israelis to make sure that there are more Jewish uh, population between the borders of Israel than there are Arabs. It's just cutting them off, redrawing the borders and moving them out. We couldn't go home. Ahmed Al-Okar was born in Palestine in 1942, and he's been living in a Lebanese refugee camp long enough to raise his family there. When he talks about Palestine, he still gets emotional. What can I say? No words can describe it, but we're strong. We believe in ourselves as a nation. There are many, many Palestinians there too, refugees, who were pushed from Israel when the Israeli state was created. They're not going to be allowed the right to return. Almost half the Palestinians are refugees, and those are entitled, according to 194, to be allowed back to the homes that they were kicked out from. What the Trump plan is about is if it's going to be solved, it's not going to be solved on Israel's lands. Basically, that means they're not allowed to go back to their homes. Rani is referring to UN Resolution 194. Let me just quote it here. Refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so. What the Trump plan is about and what Israel's Netanyahu said when the the plan was rolled out is that any solution for the refugee problem will not happen. Basically, that means they're not allowed to go back to their homes. It has been one of the demands of Palestinians for so long, right? Exactly. It's crucial to Palestinians. You've got generations upon generations that have been passing on their home keys. Keys to the houses they lived in until they were forced to leave. 
If you ask a Palestinian refugee kid, where are you from? They wouldn't tell you I'm from this refugee camp. They tell you their grandparents' hometown. They're linked still to their uh, land. So there were also other promises under this deal, uh, like Mm. a $50 billion investment (laughs) in Palestine if leaders agreed to the deal and the promise of a Palestinian state. It's, It's not the price tag for Palestine. That's not the price tag, and... Trump and Netanyahu are not paying it. They're collecting it from Arab states. Kushner has said he hopes to get at least some of the money from states in the region. The plan basically packages the problems, the roots of the conflict, and sells the problems in the conflict as a solution. They want Palestinian approval for further settlement, for further annexation, for further dehumanization, and they want them to approve on a system of apartheid The United States has carved out a place for itself, peddling peace to the Middle East. But the truth is, it's never been especially successful. And this time, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas says Palestinians are done. We decided to cut ties to the United States and the White House. And again, the Palestinians are looking to the rest of the world, through the UN, for help. I would like to thank countries, regional and international organizations, parliaments around the world, members of the Security Council. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas went to the UN this week, saying essentially the plan should be rejected by the world. People know that there's little the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian leadership can do. They're trying to gather and rally support behind the rejection to the plan. They started off with the Arab League, the African Union, and they're trying to do that the same with the UN Security Council, knowing that the US will veto. But then they're going to go to the UN General Assembly, and you've got a body of 193 countries. They believe and they hope most of those countries are going to vote against the plan. So, Rania, I'm going through your Twitter feed because I love following reporters from all over. And you tweeted on February 1st about President Abbas. You said, at 84, President Abbas knows he's not the Palestinian leader who'll bring about peace, critics say. He doesn't want to be remembered as the leader who betrayed the cause or sold out Jerusalem. The legacy he's after, the man who said no to America. He's the person who is still saying, I've got only one way to get you peace, to get you a state through negotiations. And at this stage, 25 years after Oslo has been signed, it's clear that we're further away from peace and statehood than we were ever. With this Trump plan, what kind of legacy is Abbas at 84 going to leave behind? The legacy that critics here say he is after is to say no to, uh, to the U.S. You've got Arab countries and non-Arab countries that caved in to the U.S. pressure and Palestinians didn't. Then this is what he hopes to have in the books after uh, he's gone. Hmm. I'm wondering about the Palestinian people. What is peace for them? You've got lots of people who are I wouldn't say apathetic, but this is the authority that has promised them peace but didn't deliver. When people ask me how to define occupation, I pose because it's, I was born and raised under it. So it's not easy for me to imagine life without it. 
it's part of our daily routine. But the way I hope my kids, I like, I hope my kids will live to see the day where they can move between Ramallah and Nablus without encountering a checkpoint, without seeing a settlement, with at least knowing that the drive there is going to take them an hour, not three hours, not four hours. I want them to know that they can plan their lives, that they have control over their lives. And there are a lot of lives at stake. I know it might sound silly, but the fact that you have no control over your life is... Now you're getting me emotionally now. I just want them to live life better than mine. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. And on top of your other reporting that I know you're doing. Thank you. Before we go, we wanted to hear from one more person. Remember when we started this interview, Rania was reporting on the 17-year-old boy who was killed in Hebron, Muhammad al-Haddad. His father is Sleiman al-Haddad, and we managed to reach him over the phone. Hello, the day after his son was killed. I'm placing the responsibility of my son's death on America and Israel because of this deal. It wasn't a big story that day, or the day after that, when three more Palestinians were shot and killed. I do everything I can to protect my kids. But Rania was right. For this family, the world had changed. But this time, I couldn't protect my son. And that's The Take. Today's episode was produced by Amy Walters with Priyanka Tilbe, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, and Ney Alvarez. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. This week, we want to extend a special thanks to Haitham al-Nasr, Saad Turjman, Amanda Price, and James Bays for their help. You may have noticed Gaza didn't come up this episode. Don't worry, we have an episode coming up for you Friday, February 14th, and it's a sweet one. Literally sweet. Stay tuned and spread the love. And if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to aljazeera.com slash the take. You can find subscribe links there. And on Twitter and Instagram, you'll find us at AJ the Take.